It's good to see you guys here. Today was a tough day for me. I totally got spun out and struggled. And all my attempts to boot and rally, I, I couldn't get through there. But man, when I walked in tonight in that worship tonight, oh, it was amazing. Thank you, guys. This is all their equipment. They love us so much, they brought all this in for us. It was just absolutely amazing. So we're in the middle of a series on the misunderstood heart of God. And I have two little ones. I have a four-year-old girl and a two-year-old son. And I spend my time trying my best they would know me and really know my heart. And can you imagine, maybe you have kids, maybe you don't, but imagine for a second your own beloved children having the wrong idea of who you are. And how that would pain your heart and how you would be concerned that they would actually know the real you. And if they had stories and concepts and perceptions about you that were completely against your heart, how would you respond? And that's what this series is, is about. And we're trying to uncover the lies that have developed in God's children's hearts. And we say many things about God and we believe things about him that really aren't in the Bible, A, eh, and aren't true. And we examine God's character, we find that we've actually allowed different things to sneak into our belief system. And so I'm asking for you, if you're here tonight, if you've been in the past few weeks, is just to have your mind and heart available to be changed. Usually we let the traumatic times inform our theology, which is a really bad plan. It's times like this when maybe your, your life is just like okay. It's these times that actually say, God, what... Who are you really like? I'm not going to allow trauma, circumstance, highs, lows to, to inform my theology. I'm going to allow the peace of my life right now to allow me to think critically and examine my heart. There's an author by the name of Darren Hufford who helped reveal a lot of these things to me. He's got a couple books, and so I just want to pay tribute to him. But how do we really know God's character? How do we really know God's character? And, and God made it really simple for us. He says that God is love in 1 John 4, 8. Very, very simple. God is love. But not just there, that we know that the Bible actually defines for us what love is. And if we connect those two dots, if we really understand love, then we actually really understand God. But the problem is, is that we have all these other ideas of love that we've accumulated in our, our life. We have relationships with our peers. We have relationships with our parents. We have broken dating relationships. We have marriage. We have kids. We have all these things. And somehow they, they form a concept of love. But here's the problem is that we get a lot of broken experiences with love, don't we? And if you build a broken perception and belief, belief of love, you get a broken perception of God. And vice versa, if you have a really broken perception of God, you actually get a really broken perception of love, and that is what this is about. And so we need not go any further to understand God's heart besides studying what love is. And as 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. We can know everything about God's character and who he is by this passage. So tonight, as we've been studying through, we're at God does not boast. If you've been doing the math, we are not going to finish this series on time. 
And for the reason is, I, it's just too important that we get this right. Instead of just blasting through all this and trying to cram it in, it's important that we actually go through and really examine these lies because these lies are crippling in our faith. They will completely destroy intimacy. Tonight was one of the most intimate times I've had in worship in a long time. And why? It's because I've, I've extracted these lies that for a while would produce a callus on my heart when I engage with God. And I'm like this like little weepy guy in the room, like, oh, that's great, you know, because I, I finally have like found that these lies have been in there for so long that have gone unchallenged. And a lie that is unchallenged becomes truth. You have a lie that seeps in there. If it's not challenged, it, it remains with you until it's exposed. And so that's the point tonight. So where God does not boast. Now here's the thing about boasting, is the first one, is that boasting's not lying. It's actually truthful. It's kind of like me saying, like, I'm more attractive than Brett Shoemaker. I mean, I'm just not lying. I'm just trying to... <laughs> or that I can bench press more than Shaddy. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. It's just... Neither of those things are true, but, um, but boasting, actually, what's funny about boasting is actually boasting usually is about truth, but it has this really nasty side effect, and that is that it leaves everyone feeling like they're being pushed down. It's truth, but the truth does something where it pushes others down around you, it leaves them feeling like failures, or at the least, feeling less adequate. And boasting at its core, it's about comparison, you and them. And the result of boasting people is that other people around them don't feel like they add up. Now, social media is like the boasting platform. Like all it does. And I've found that it is perfectly acceptable to boast on social media as long as you use the hashtag blessed. (laughs) We have a friend who posted a picture of their two-year-old boarding a private jet for a Cabo weekend. Blessed. I'm just like, I'm looking at my son, I'm like taking him to, you know, the park. I'm like, this, kid, this kid's going to Cabo for the weekend, you know? And, but there's a form of, of Christian boasting, too, that can kind of be toxic. And only is a social media about, hey, I got this, and we're projecting the life we want you to think I have and, and believe. But there's a form of Christian boasting within our spirituality. How you doing, Jim? Doing great. Just finished fasting for 200 days. Had a good conversation with Jesus this morning. Cared for five orphans, and I built a church last night. How you doing? <laughs> I'm just going to work. Did none of that. <laughs> And we hear someone talk about their faith, and oftentimes as we're hearing them talk about their faith, we slowly like feel like sinking back. Like, I'm not that holy. You love Jesus way more than me. Many times I've been at prayer meetings where I've left the prayer meeting feeling like a total loser. I've been to religious experiences and church services where people there, they're so gifted, so talented, and it's so exuberant and so there that I'm just like, I've, I'm in the wrong room. I don't even belong with these people. You can have someone who's so anointed, so gifted, but yet and how it comes across that I feel like I'm a total failure. Might be why Jesus talks about that as you pray, do not use meaningless repetitions and words like the Gentiles, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. And these are people who have good hearts, 
There's nothing wrong with that. Like, I want people to be anointed and be gifted. Amen. We have amazing men. We have amazing people. Like, I want people to be gifted and, and celebrated. Don't misunderstand me. But there's a, an aspect sometimes to Christianity where the result makes people feel like they come up short. And if people feel like they come up short, you know what they do is they give up. No one likes to struggle in anything. That's why I don't run. I'm terrible at it. I've never been good at it. It's like, I'm just giving up. Not meant for me. Or math. Like, I struggled in math my entire life. I can't do long division. I'm not even kidding. It's so bad. And, and when you struggle with something, you just give up. You want it to end. And perhaps people are giving up on faith, maybe because they feel like they're failing at faith. Boasting always has the anti-relationship effect of lowering others and reducing their confidence. It's one thing to talk about God in a way that inspires them to receive what you have. It's another way to talk about God in a way that makes everyone else feel like they're failing at their faith. And we must consider that when we talk about our faith, that we don't feel people like that what you've reached is unattainable. That's why we share testimonies. Testimonies are so strategic here. Revelation 19.10, it says that, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is really interesting. Is that a, a, a testimony is a prophetic word for all who hear. That means that that's actually a word spoken over my life that I can apply. It's a vision for what could be and for me in my life. That's why we hear testimonies. And you know when we say amen, you know what amen means? Do it again. So we hear testimonies, the prophetic word, the testimony of Jesus goes out, a declaration over your life, what can be for you. We say, amen, Jesus, do it again. And we celebrate testimonies, not like this person's got it all figured out. It's like, look what Jesus is doing, and here's how he's done it in me, how he can do it in you too. But do we believe that God boasts? Here's two remarkable examples for how God does not boast. One is the nature in which he came to earth. God became something lower than you in order to lift you up. Let's just consider this for a moment. Consider that the first act, the very first act in, an, in enabling intimate relationship with you was for God to lower himself. In order for God to develop intimate relationship with you, the very first thing he did was lower himself. Hebrews 2.9 says he was made lower than the angels that he might taste death for everyone. Now, Jesus could have showed up in a blaze of glory like, ta-da, I'm here, you know, what up? Bam, fireworks, you know, he could have done that. We'd have no problem with that. But he didn't. He didn't come in this like ball of glory. He was born in a manger in a barn. He wasn't ushered in like broad with like gold bars and, and a gold crib and he didn't have a golden pacifier. And he, like he, he was in a form that was the lowest form that we would understand and beneath that. And then he was a servant of men and then he died a criminal's death on a cross. The final act he had on earth was washing the stinky, ugly, smelly feet of disciples before going and dying on a cross to pay for all the sins of the world. Now why didn't Jesus come in majesty and glory and on fireworks and balls of fury? Well, sometimes glory and awe can disable relationship. 
Sometimes glory and awe can disable relationship. You can be in awe of someone, but sometimes that awe of someone will completely keep you away from knowing them. It's kind of like meeting a celebrity. Have you ever met a celebrity? You, you cannot have a conversation with them, right? You're like, you are you. Wow, you're really you. And remember that, that one time you did that thing? Oh, so awesome, right? Like, we get it. I met Banning Liebscher a few weeks ago. And I've like known them, like their music and everything, and I know a lot of you guys have met them, but it was the first time like we had lunch together. And I was just like, oh, what do I talk to him about? It was like, um, so you're you, and I'm me, and um, what do we talk about, you know? <laughs> and I don't know, like I never met Michael Jordan, but that's like my, my dream, but I would have no idea what to talk to him about either. Why? It's because that awe and glory, that stature that you surround someone with will disable the intimate relationship that is actually purposing. God wants you to have intimate relationship with him. So he came as a man in disarming form so you would have his heart, not his awe. The awe of fame keeps people away from having authentic relationship. That's why you see celebrities, oftentimes they'll like marry no-namers. Like, who? <laughs> you know? Why didn't they marry, like, this other celebrity, you know? And it's because celebrities are usually some of the loneliest people because no one can have a relationship. They don't feel that they are ever really known. But Jesus knew that glory and awe would be substituted for intimacy, and he knew that we'd be stuck on the glory and the awe and the fame and never have his heart. And so he reduced his all-consuming glory and awe and put it into the form of a man that's unassuming and approachable so he would have his heart. Does God boast? Nope. The second way is in the nature that God died for us. Think about this. The crucifixion, which is the single most important event that has ever happened in all of history, in all the world, all of our times, like everything that your calendar runs it's, it's every, the whole world runs off this one moment in time. One event set the entire world afire. Everything revolves around this one event, the crucifixion. And you know what? There's one paragraph in the Bible about the crucifixion. Only one. Have you ever thought about that? The books, the Bible's like a big book. The story on the cross is like hardly mentioned. And it's only mentioned to the degree, this is fascinating, it's only mentioned to the degree that it mentions the specific prophecies that were fulfilled and nothing more. There's no extra detail that was in there. It only was limited to, de de to declare and to prove that Christ on the cross was the Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament. Now, God could have inspired the authors to write chapters on the pain and the agony and the effects of taking all the sins of the world upon him. I'm sure that could have been a really lengthy story. I mean, he hung on the cross all day long. But the level of detail was limited. Why? It's because God doesn't boast in the agony of the cross because the guilt from the gratitude we would experience would completely destroy our intimacy. The guilt that we would experience from the weight of the gratitude would completely destroy the intimacy that God wants for us. God does not boast when he has the right to boast about the cross in every detail. And he never boasts about what he went through to reconcile you. Let me give you an example in this. 
Let's say there's a man who came into my house, walks in, is like, I'm going to kill your whole entire family right now. And I convince him to say, kill me, save and spare my wife and two kids. I convince him, and he's like, okay. And so my wife and two kids, I leave it. And so he takes me in the back, and he films me, and he tortures me for hours and hours before killing me. It's a videotape of my gruesome death. Do you think that I ever want my own children to watch that video? Would you be like, oh, man, I would really like them to appreciate what I did for them? No way. I would never want them to even come close to it. And that's exactly what God feels for us. As I told you last week, is like I've never seen the movie The Passion of the Cross. I know what happened. I don't want to watch three hours in HD of like what happened. Why? It's because the gratitude would produce an unbearable guilt that would destroy intimacy. I have thankfulness. I have gratitude for it. But the Father's heart doesn't want you to meditate on the pain that he endured from you. He wants you to consider the kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, not the pain of God on the cross that leads you to the repentance. Are you with me? And so God doesn't want you to focus on the cross. He wants you to focus on the, res- on the resurrection, what happened. All the stories are what happened after and the great victory that we had. I struggled with the guilt of the cross for so long. You know why I did? Because I had a boastful God that I was worshiping in my heart. Because nothing I could ever do would ever repay the cross. I was dwelling on a detail that God was never asking me to think about nor dwell on. Because God doesn't boast. He's not interested in rubbing your nose in what he did for you. Because that destroys intimacy. God is not proud either. What does it mean to be proud? The Greek word here means to puff up, to blow up, to be haughty. It also kind of means to be arrogant. Our terminology for it is to be prideful. What does it mean to be prideful, haughty, arrogant? Well, the essence of this is very, very simple. It's not needing anyone or anything. To be prideful is to have no need. It's not need anybody or anything Pride is not about having sufficient capability and having confidence. It's actually about closing your heart and prohibiting it from being touched. Show me someone whose heart never lets someone in, and I will show you someone who's prideful. Why? It's because they have no need, or they think they have no need. Now, here's the problem is that religion encourages people to have prideful hearts. They will not need anyone or anyone else. The highest form you can have in religion is having no need. That's the goal. Because it's not okay to not be okay, is it, in church? You're supposed to come here to have it figured out. What's the point of having God if you still have problems? (laughs) Most people seek out religion in order to eradicate the problems of their life. Amen? It's not okay to say I'm struggling or I'm, like I'm in a bad place. It's not okay to have needs. And one of the great burdens in life is a Christian whose life isn't going well. Because it breaks the whole idea of what's supposed to happen. Because most people believe that religion's primary purpose is to get rid of problems, get rid of need. 
You're not supposed to have those things. We see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, talking about pride, and the Pharisees about how, remember how he talked about the, the Pharisees going uh, up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, what he does is he, he basically says, I am so glad I'm not that guy. And he says, I tithe on everything I own. I fast two times a week. He talks about all the things he has done. He was prideful because he had no need. Yet the tax collector came in. The tax collector could not lift his eyes and say, God, be merciful and beat his chest. And Jesus says that he went home justified before God. The one who had the most sin went home the most justified. And this theme runs throughout the scriptures. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, God is opposed to those who have no need because he gives to those who are in need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't mean like, oh, they have a poverty spirit. Like, no, like poor in spirit means they have need. Poor in spirit means I have need. For my spirit, I have a need for the things of God. So what does this say about God if he's not proud? What is the opposite of pride? Humility. Pride says, forget you. Humility says, I need you. Pride says, get out, I don't need you. I don't need you in my life. Humility says, I desire you. I need you in my life. God is not proud because God opposes the proud. That's pretty straightforward. But what does this suggest? Now, warning, I'm about to offend a lot of you. A lot. Now, at this juncture, this is not my original thought, and I stopped reading after this because I'm like, heretic! You know, I'm just like, over. I've never been able to reconcile this thought. I don't know actually where I even stand on it, but I'm going to share with you. Is that okay? So don't throw stones, spears, flaming things at me, okay? Because I, I, this is a very thought-provoking thought. I don't have a better answer, and I'm just wrestling with it. It messes with my 30 years of believing in Jesus to come to this. But does God have a need? Does God have a need? Could it be that God actually has a need? And it goes against everything we've ever thought. It violates everything that God is all sufficient. He is all contained, lacking nothing. Like, I get that, right? But in that description, does that preclude him from having any need? Do we really believe that God has no need? I don't know, but a couple of things are challenging me towards this. Let me tell you what I'm kind of journeying through in this. Have you ever wondered why God created us? I thought worship. Like, we've been created to worship. Duh, of course. Here's the problem. I go to work 40 hours a week. If I was created to worship, I'm like rebelling 40 hours a week. That doesn't sound good. Have you ever read the descriptions in heaven? They've got creatures with eyeballs all over their head worshiping God. How do you compare with that? You can't compete with that. 
You have this like picture of worship in heaven that you're just like, I'm just in Converse shoes in a church. Got nothing more than me. I only got two eyes, not 40. I have no wings. I have nothing coming out of my mouth. I'm just here. But I thought my entire life we were meant to worship, created to worship. But here's the thing is that worship is actually the consummation of covenant. Worship is the consummation of covenant. We're in the new covenant. Christ's blood is the covenant. God doesn't desire worship from those he's not in covenant with. God doesn't desire worship from people he's not in covenant with. Worship is what happens after the covenant. Now, I like consummation after my wedding. Amen? Holy sanctified. All right? Worship is the intimate consummation. My wife is like, heads buried in her hands. I'm not going to boast. No, I'm teasing. I'm just not going <laughs> to. Let me roll it back in here before I get myself in trouble. God desires marriage first. Amen? God desires marriage first. He desires worship second. Worship is the outflow of the consummation of the covenant, which is the marriage, which is your relationship with him. You've eternally been sealed. Worship is meaningful because you've been eternally sealed with him in the heavenly realms. It's about relationship. So when we say that God created us just to worship him, it's just as offensive as me saying, I just married my wife for the sex. If a relationship is just about the physical consummation, then that's not really a relationship at all, is it? Sex is only meaningful if you have a relationship with the person. And worship, I would suggest, is only meaningful if you actually have a relationship with the Creator. This was a fantastic music. But the music only goes so far because you have to have a relationship to bring your heart to tears. If it's just like fine music, you're like, this is good music, which is fine. But God doesn't desire the consummation without the covenant. It's backwards to him. And if this was an empty worship experience for you, it could be because you think that God is only in the relationship with you to get your worship and you feel like it's being coerced from you. Worship is a voluntary act that we say, God, I engage with you. It's the most intimate form of connection we have with God, just like the intimate relationship we have in marriage. Worship is the most intimate experience we can have with God, and he desires that under covenant. Yet somehow we find a way in our Christian thinking to also celebrate that God has no need for us. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase that um, God doesn't need you. You need him. Have you heard that? I feel amazing now. That feels so good, you know. God doesn't need you. You need him. But we would never embrace relationship with someone who introduced us to a person that way. Meet Jim. He doesn't need you, but you really need him. Now, you might be in a relationship only if you're in the business to use Jim. 
That makes sense to you. Now, he doesn't need me, but I need him. And because he doesn't need me, I'm going to use him. And we've been used to relationships that way. If we took the things we said about God in these ways and we put it on a person, we would never find ourselves in an alleyway with this person. We would despise them. We would unfriend them on Facebook, block them, and, un- and defriend them. The concept that God needed relationship, though, has never crossed our minds. It's actually offensive to think of such a thing. If God really wanted more worship, more glory, he wouldn't have created human beings that were capable of rejecting him. If God created all the six billion people all to worship him, and then he made the stupid mistake of making them able to reject him, that seems like a bad plan if you're trying to go for more worship. Are you with me? Could it be that God has a desire and God has a need for relationship with you. Desiring and needing someone is what causes a relationship to flourish. We usually end relationships like, I don't need you. That's how we end relationships, right? You wouldn't be in a relationship with someone who's like, I don't need you at all. Then you're like, what are we doing next weekend? <laughs> like, you don't even go there. The mutual desire, the mutual need are the ingredients that make powerful relationships powerful. And perhaps we have lukewarm Christians because they feel used by God. They simply feel like they're fulfilling a role that God has created them and they actually inside feel unwanted and undesired. How do you get a lukewarm relationship? You have one or more parties in a relationship who stops needing and desiring the other one. That's how you get a relationship that falters and fails. Does God need us? It's such a provocative question, isn't it? And so we're studying this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I'm bad at math. What comes before 13? 12. All right, good. What does it talk about in 1 Corinthians 12? The body. Hmm. The body. Paul's talking about how we're the body. In chapter 12, verse 21 and 23, it says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Do you notice that third line up there? Again, the head to the feet, I have no need for you. That's kind of odd. What's the head of the body of Christ? Jesus. Colossians 1.18, Christ is also the head of the body, the church. It says, the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need for you. But wait, Jesus is the head. How does that work? Does God need you? I don't know. I'm struggling with it too. But it says that the members, oops, it says the members, one more back. It says the members of the body which seem weaker are necessary. And it says they seem weaker. Not that you are weaker. It's like the lowliest ones are have to be there. It's a, the ones who seem weaker are necessary. Could it be that you are necessary to God? 
that you're needed by him. Maybe the answer's in our humanity. Let's take it back one more notch. In the history of civilization, there's been crazy atrocities. One of those atrocities was by King Frederick II, who's one of the most powerful Roman emperors between the years of 1220 and 1250. And he wanted to do an experiment. He wanted to do an experiment of, if you took all these babies and you never talked to them, touched them, looked them in the eye, what language would they learn? What is the language of God is what he wanted to go after. So he took all these newborn babies separated from their mother. They were instructed only to feed them, but never to care, never to talk, never to engage with them. And you know what happened? They all died. They all died. Unexplicably. Now, this experiment, unfortunately, has been carried out many times throughout civilization. There's even terms for it. Language deprivation, touch deprivation, maternal deprivation. There are all these experiences. They always end in the child dying. And if somehow it doesn't die, it is irreversibly mentally retarded. Relationship is a life and death matter. In 1988, this is something interesting I found recently is that prior to 1988, you could not touch as a policy in the hospital a premature baby in the ICU. There's a no touching, no touching policy. Sorry, I've been watching The Emperor's New Groove and that's one of the quotes my, my daughter loves. It just came out. <clears throat> I have this colossal bedtime routine where we pretty much have to quote the entire movie. But there was a policy until 1988 that says you do not touch a premature baby in the ICU because you cause its stress on its lungs, you cause its flesh to react, and it cannot handle the weight, the stress. It's too fragile. And so a, doc a doctor, Dr. Fields, in 1988 decided to test this. Like, what happens if we just touch the child for 15 minutes a day? You know what happened? The baby started to put on weight twice as fast, dramatically reducing infant mortality by touching the child. I mean, even our son, he was in the ICU, and they were encouraged, like, come hold him, come touch him. I had no idea that this was illegal, and, and, and the infant mortality rate of premature babies in the ICU has been completely dramatically changed simply because you introduce relationship at the human being level. There's something about life and relationship that are linked. And here's something even, also another interesting thing is, and there's an ancient Polynesian culture that they didn't have prisons like we have prisons or the death penalty like we have. If you had someone who committed a crime and they were judged to be killed, to have capital punishment, the worst punishment, you know what they would do? All they would do is tell the entire village, no one talk, Touch, engage with this person. The whole village, all they have to do is instruct us to not touch, talk, engage with a person. It's a matter of time before they wander off and are never to be seen again. Cutting off relationship is the death penalty in these ancient cultures. They didn't have to bring a spear and kill them. All they need to do is just stop relationship with them. There's something in our humanity is designed to have relationship. Does God have a need for us? I don't know, but we're made in his image. 
These are crazy things. I don't know what to do with them. That we unexplainably die if we don't have relationship. Could it be part of God's creation that we're created in his image that he designed us to be needed by him and we need him? Do we have the same need as God? And I get that this is a hard concept because sometimes the, vul- the vulnerability to that truth is startling. I remember for the first time when I saw my dad cry. I couldn't tell you what was happening. All I remember is that exact motion and just the trauma of seeing my father crying. I was like more sad about that than whatever was going on. I think someone important like was either really hurt dying or something and really bad. But I like for me, like dad doesn't cry. Dad doesn't cry. He can kick your butt. He can do everything better than anybody else. And like the whole playground thing, like that's who he is. And we have this image, I think, with God too, is that he's this protected entity. And, and yes, he's all powerful, all knowing, all great and glorious and wonderful. But is it so offensive that God has a need that we can't come to it? And just like my father realizing behind the glory of my own earthly father that there was a man whose heart was grieved beneath the glory of who he was. Does God need you? I don't know. But I know that God is not proud and a prideful person has no need. The pride says, forget you, but humility says, I need you. And if if this bristles you, then that's fine. You can think about it. Let me end with this. Do you have a boastful God like I did? Do you believe that God boasts in your relationship? Here's how you can tell. Is if you are still feeling the guilt and the struggle of repaying the cross, if you can't think of the cross because it brings you too much grief, if you don't have a wonderful image of kindness, you don't have this amazing act to demonstrate his love for you, and if you have guilt and you have a boastful God who you secretly think wants you to repay back the cross, and any attempt to repay a gift, it's the gift, Amen. The cross is a gift, not an obligation. Anytime someone tries to repay the gift, the gift is really being rejected. If you're wrestling with trying to find out, God, how do I respond to the cross? You All that you did, he doesn't want you. He's like, just receive it. Just receive it. Don't think about it. It was bad. That's all you need to know. Just receive it. Boasters always expect repayment. God's not that way. He never boasts. God never uses his sacrifice to guilt you with obligation. Guilt is not a godly motivator. If you have guilt in your relationship with God, you probably have a boastful God who's expecting repayment for something. Do you believe God is proud? If you believe that you're just being used by God and there's no exchange, there's no purpose there. If you're like fulfilling a role, then you have a God that's proud, that is trying to use you without any need of any relationship coming back to you. It's not true that God doesn't need you, that you need him. It's actually that the relationship says that we desire each other. So come into agreement tonight that God desires you, that he created you because he desired you, that you were actually wanted, despite whether your parents meant to have you, wanted to have you, still want you, you know, like any of that stuff that God actually does. He does. He's so interested in you, and he wants genuine 
relationship with you. It's important that our hearts break through to God. These are the barriers that keep our hearts connected to him because we will not worship a boastful God who rubs the cross in our nose. And we will not engage in authentic relationship with someone who really is annoyed by us and has no need for us. I love you guys. Amen.